Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon, and I am so excited to be back from Oshkosh and starting the show here again with all of you. And thank you so much for taking time out of your evening. I, I just want to begin by uh, thanking everyone that we met while we were out at that show. I'll tell you that it is such a thrill to meet people out in general aviation and see so many of the people that are part, not just of our general aviation community, but part of our social flight community. And those of you who take time out of your evening to dial in and see this show and join me with these amazing, amazing guests. And we had our special snag, some swag uh, event where we went out there, I'll tell you, <laughs> we had, I think, hundreds of different pieces of uh, social play gear that we brought out from, from t-shirts to uh, cool uh, pins like uh, this. We had things of our Mustang build uh, that were really cool all sorts of different stuff that we brought out there and we even uh we gave away some very cool things like our uh, massimo mighty sat here um uh to uh, a few select winners when we were out there and it we came back with probably just a handful of things and it was such a joy to spend the week out there flying in of course for so many people if you did attend the show uh going in there on saturday we got in just before a massive storm came through and uh, fortunately, uh, I'm not aware of, of any, at least uh, owner-flown aircraft that came in that had any issues. Everyone pretty much got through it without damage and uh, got to have just a glorious week of wonderful weather and seeing everyone uh, else who's out there. And uh, I want to share a couple things uh, before we get started tonight with you. And uh, I'll show you here. Uh, this is the, the night that we arrived uh, and after that storm had passed through was just the most amazing um, sunset. And it just shows you the reason that you actually go to uh, AirVenture and to Oshkosh if you ever get a chance to get out there. Um, we were uh, crawling the grounds in um, our uh, uh, social flight car, which if you, for those that, that spotted us with uh, cool gear there. And I was uh, so fortunate to be able to give some presentations while I was out there. And one of them was on maintenance. Uh, on uh, maintenance-inspired, uh, uh, mechanic-inspired pre-flight inspections with my good friend and expert in the proficient pilot, Brian Schiff. And that was a, a great talk to, and a lot of fun for me to be uh, able to present with Brian out at the show. Also had a great opportunity to meet with David Yule, who was unveiling a new piece there called Eternal Radiance that you can see in the background with that Corsair uh, amazing, amazing piece uh, featuring uh, post uh, 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 her uh, passing away of Jesse Combs, who was the fastest woman land speed record on four wheels 
and someone you may have seen on on TV on so many different shows of rebuilding cars and things like that. And she's featured in this uh, painting with the permission of her family. Uh, there are videos on YouTube of all of this, and you can see some great explanation from him of his thought process and what goes into uh, the artwork. It really was spectacular. Um, also, uh, had the pleasure of running into Erin Miller, who's been on the show here. Uh, she wrote the book Final Flight, Final Fight, about getting her grandmother to be buried in Arlington National Cemetery, who was one of the wasps. And also Elena Lewis of Culver Props there on the right. Um, she's so wonderful and, and makes some of these uh, just absolute pieces of artwork in wooden props there at the show as well. Um, also got to um, spend time here on uh, Rebuild Rescue uh, uh, here, which is uh, just such a such a cool show, and get to meet Jason Morrison of that show. And then um, Mark um, Patey uh, revealed a, a whole new line of, uh, of different products for his uh, tugs, including something that, uh, I'll tell you, the Patey brothers are always coming out with things that when you hear about it, you're like, oh my God, of course, of course that exists. So they came out, uh, if you didn't see the news, with these remote controls for people that help park aircraft on the ramp that just instantly are dead man switches. So if you see something that's about to hit, uh, uh, go the wrong way, a wing that's going to hit, uh, hit, run into something or, or something not going well, instead of yelling to someone and then realistically, sometimes it's not fast enough to stop damage from occurring, you just hit the button and any one of their tugs will just stop immediately. And uh, uh, it, it's, you know, it seems obvious, but these guys are just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, Kevin LaRosa. Uh, who also, there are videos of all of this on YouTube, uh, who is the uh, aerial stunt coordinator and also stunt pilot in Top Gun, Maverick. Uh, spent time with him. He's going to be coming on Social Flight Live. So look for a future episode with Kevin LaRosa. We're going to find out all about the background of working with Tom Cruise and putting together that show. So uh, look for that episode to come as well. Um, and, uh, and there's just so much more to, to, uh, to do that. And of course we got to walk the grounds and look at these just incredible aircraft up close and be able to get a few things, uh, you know, just this, this, these views that you simply can't get anywhere else in the world, uh, except for Oshkosh and that it's a once a year. And for any of you who are uh, kind of recovering from being at the show, coming home and, and coming down for that, it's always a little bit sad. Um, to be home and missing what the adventure was being there. And I'd like to leave you with one uh, photo before we begin the program tonight. And this comes courtesy uh, through Brian Schiff of Mark King that took this amazing photo, believe it or not, with an iPhone, iPhone 13, of the spectacular fireworks on the Saturday night show um, in the night air show showing the wall of fire going off behind this uh, C-47. It, I saw this photo and I just thought how this has to be framed on the wall. This is truly, truly amazing and just something I wanted to be able to share uh, a little bit with all of you. And so uh, with that, I just want to thank all of our partners that we spent so much time with at the show and make all of this possible. That's Aspen Avionics and Avidyne, Continental, uh, Bose and Link and L3 Links and Lightspeed, Massimo, uh, Tempest Aero, Whip Air, and Titan Aircraft. There's and 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 so many others that make everything that we do possible. And so with that, I want to begin by uh, introducing my good friend 
and someone I, I, I just thought would be so much fun to share with all of you here on the show, GM Bell. Uh, as uh, CEO of FlightHelmet.com, you'd expect that GM Bell would, of course, be an expert in flight helmets. Uh, but his passion and experience with not just helmets, but flight gear and so many other things you're going to learn about tonight just goes so much deeper than just being an expert at a company. From a young age, GM started collecting flight helmets and gear of all kinds in order to preserve the history of this little corner of aviation. He even built a museum dedicated to preserving these collectibles and educating others about it. Uh, the history and the expertise, not just in that background, but also in the state of the art for any of you considering protective gear now is what makes his expertise and that of FlightHelmet.com the leader in helmets and protective gear. And as you'll see tonight, uh, it really is an amazing, as I mentioned, an amazing little corner of our aviation universe. I'm going to bring GM on the line now and uh, please welcome to Social Flight Live. GM Bell. How are you doing, GM? I'm doing great this evening. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. It was wonderful to see you uh, out there uh, at the show. And, and, it, and it, I mean, this was the busiest show ever. They set records. I'm amazed. H how were things for you? Uh, we felt the same thing. It wasn't just the public. Uh, we had customers at our booth there in Hangar C every day all day it seemed from wow. monday through saturday so i mean every time i walked by your booth you were like layers deep in people <laughs> yep and that's that's what we're there for so it's a great opportunity for customers to meet us uh ask questions but since uh picking out and configuring a helmet is a very detailed process um and we want to make sure that customers get exactly what they want and that it fits and that they enjoy it um that being there and going through that whole process with us in person is what we're there for. And we hope that everybody was able to uh, get that accomplished with, with us while we were there and apologize uh, for our busyness with <laughs> as many people were there at our booth as there were. So, Well, I'll tell you, going into it, I didn't know what to predict. I figured with, uh, with fuel prices where they are, uh, maybe uh, you'd have a lot of people, but maybe a little bit fewer aircraft people carpooling, basically. I knew a bunch of people flying together, but no, like every record got broken. It, it's it's amazing, and it and it's it just puts a real grin on my face because it was uh, it's just so crazy. Yeah, it it's, was wonderful for us too. So that, the crowd translates to interested people in helmets and our products, and it's good for all the vendors there to have such a great crowd of aviation enthusiasts. Yep. So take me back. Let's, let's go back to the beginning of what, what is it that if people can see behind you? I mean, let's, we'll talk a little bit later about your products and, and things like that, but I really want to dive into how you got to this point that you're sitting there with a museum behind you of, of helmets, uh, and gear and and even ejection seats. I mean, how does this happen? How did you become the GM Bell of FlightHelmet.com? It it's I would never have predicted to have arrived at this point at this time in my life. Um, but it started when I was young, um, probably eight years old, even earlier. Um, it started my. I came from a family of collectors. We traveled to collectible shows throughout the year. Um, and it was, I guess, only natural that 
I acquired an interest in a particular type of collectible and that happened to be aviation and airplanes. And I was about eight years old when uh, one of the shows, my mom, she, I guess I saw something on the table that I liked and it turned out to be a leather World War II flying hat and she bought it for me and that was the beginning. So from then I needed the goggles and I needed the oxygen mask and then I needed the cloth hat and then I needed a jacket and the life vest and the parachute. And then I needed a mannequin to put it all on. And then I needed another mannequin. And so over the years it grew and it's just a interest that has never, never really faded. It's always been kind of the driving force behind me and everything that I've done. So. So did you start learning both the, the history when you, when you dive into collectibles, it, it seems to me part of it is obtaining the objects and then a, probably a much bigger part of it is understanding the, the history and and learning all about it. So when you first got started at eight, this was this this first helmet, this kick off this whole, what is this helmet I just picked up and how does it fit into history? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, I actually, so the whole historical part of it, one of my other earlier collections that kind of maybe triggered this one, but spanned through it a little bit was uh, old boy, boy series books. So, but, like Hardy Boys, but all predating Hardy Boys. And one era, like one whole section or theme of the Boys series books was aviation, because in the teens, the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, aviation was a brand new thing. And it was, you know, it made, wrote a lot of adventurous kids' books about aviation. So I had a whole collection of these books that I read, and that spawned, you know, the general understanding of the history of aviation. And then, so when I had the first leather hat, I guess my natural inquisitive nature you know was to figure out how that fit into that backdrop of history of aviation and there's so much aspect of the history that you can consider when you consider you know a particular collectible and it's i like both of what i consider the two main aspects and one is the personal history behind it which was you know who wore it what did it do where was it at what point in time in history but then also the history of its development and where it fits in sequence of development of flight helmets and aviation products as a evolution over time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and you also span a lot of different things. I mean, I'm going to show uh, a couple of pictures here and, and a few as we go along. Um, so this is, this is you with your collection and this is, these are some pretty amazing uh, uniforms that also go along with it. So it's not just helmets for you. It's it's a lot of different things. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's I try to try to sum it up and try to keep the collection bounded a little bit. Um, I like to describe it as basically anything that an aviator would have worn or touched in an aircraft. So fascinating. I know that uh, Jake and Ben, the, the boys, my boys here at Social Play, they're very uh, into like watches, for example, and they've started to move towards the ones that were used like in World War II or stuff like that. Does, that is kind of, it seems like it's kind of similar in that. Mm -hmm. That's that's fascinating. So there's another picture. Yeah, Tell me there's, I have a whole whole series of watch watches from World War II as well. <laughs> like it, oh, you it do? includes that as well. <laughs> yeah. So this is you in a B-25. What's what's the story on that? Uh, so that's Panchito and uh, Larry Kelly 
who owns Panchito, he and I know each other from way back from when I was doing displays at a, uh, at a young age and he found me fascinating because of my interest in World War II and the history. So, uh, he, that, that was one of the displays. It was a fly, small fly-in up in Pennsylvania that we did. I brought some mannequins up and he had the B-25 there. And so I had the opportunity to sit in the cockpit and get a picture with it. So That's and awesome. So, um, recently, uh, my nine-year-old son, he got a similar picture in Panchita when we were at the World War II weekend in Reading, Pennsylvania this year. So, Oh, that's got to be cool to put those side by side. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really neat. Wow. So I, I'd like to, uh, uh, I mean, obviously I want to talk about a bunch of different things, but I really loved some of the thing, work that you've done in in educating people a little bit about this evolution because it's it's fascinating to me. And so I want to take a small part of the program and just have you take us through a little bit of evolution. And um, so here's a few a few slides that kind of show this. That um, tell me a little bit about these. Explain to us a little bit about the evolution of different types of helmets in your collection, because um, I think that'll be that'll really be interesting and in how it fits to the modern things that we that we buy today. Sure. Yeah. It, um, you know, having having studied and acquired all the different uh, versions and seen how they develop over the years, uh, you can really do see an evolution. And it's interesting, there's a couple cases where you can see how history has come back to repeat itself in a few situations. Um, but in this particular set of pictures we have here, it's I call the, the pre-World War II era. So it's post-World War I, which I have less focus in World War I. Um, so we, I kind of skip over that, but the pre-World War One era or pre-World War Two era, they used soft flying hats. Um, they really didn't have a lot of uh, communications in the aircraft, so built-in communications in the helmet wasn't a thing. Um, it was mainly for warmth, is what they used them for back then. Um, there really wasn't the thought to, you know, protective headgear for impact protection or anything, um, and then. Some of the earliest communications you can see on the right-hand side of the screen would be the Gosport communication system. So this was basically just a set of tubes and a mouthpiece that would be used by an instructor to communicate with a student one way only. <laughs> uh, student doesn't need to speak back. Um, and uh, the instructor could yell into the tube and then the sound would carry through the tubes and into the student's ears. So. Wow, I, I remember seeing that concept in like old ships where they would like yell down tubes to to talk to people. I had no idea that they were used to to yell at a student and tell them what to do. <laughs> yep, yeah, they did. They used it up into World War II, even during the training. Really? So, so here we are. Speaking of World War II. Right. So um, here we have a couple examples of early World War II um, where they. A lot of, you know, when we entered into World War II, we had existing, whatever we had in the system as far as flight gear, that's what the pilots had available to them. Um, but after they already had that stuff issued, but at the same time, you know, aircrafts were getting radios um, and they needed ways of communicating. So they added, field added the ear cups to hold the helmet. Uh, and that's what we see on the left-hand side there with just the, the drawstring ear cups sewn on the leather hat. Um, and then in the middle, 
is a little more advanced with factory-made ear cups that they would field sew onto the hats. Um, that one's also interesting because it's been signed by everyone in the squadron. So from that they period. Sewed, th those were sewn in the field. So this this really was an afterthought. Absolutely, yeah. So you see a lot of that um, pre-war and up into the middle parts of World War II is they didn't have what they needed because it it either wasn't designed, it hadn't been manufactured, or it was designed manufactured and just hadn't made it to the front lines where they needed it. Um, yeah. And so they were modifying all sorts of things. And it's not just flight helmets and adding electronics to helmets, but it's pockets and flight suits, uh, survival equipment, kits for that. They, they were making lots of things in the field. And wow. they even, the, the um, supply chains recognized that, and they even provided instructions on things that had been made that found to be successful and then shared that with other units so they could do the same thing so that they could have the equipment that they needed in advance of the development and manufacturing that was happening in the background. That's actually really fascinating as well. So basically kind of it, it was very collaborative and kind of an all-hands thing that if people were modifying things in the field but the contracts and the machinery wasn't happening behind it to create new product they would actually communicate that out even from the factory about how you could modify one of their existing things yep yeah and it i don't know that it necessarily came from the factory but through the the units and um military you know organizations that that's really how that uh, seemed to be communicated. Their wow. Government played a big part in the communication of information between the warfighter and development of contracts and products. So here we are, some a little bit more, and it looks like we're moving along in World War II. Yep, that's right. So uh, actually, if you jump back to the previous one for just a second, if you can, the the last one on the right here is. Yet again, another example of a field-modified helmet. Um, and it's a, they took a brim and sewed it on a flight helmet because there was a need for that, especially in patrol aircraft um, where they didn't, weren't necessarily using goggles and oxygen masks, but the, uh, they put a brim right on the helmet because they needed it. And then if you go to the, the next slide, you can see these all three of these are experimental um, flight caps that were test samples for Wright-Patterson Development Lab. Um, so they all three have a snap on the helmet and they manufactured a visor that it could just snap to the helmet as a add-on piece. And that's so the cloth one there on the right-hand side shows that. But all three have that modification. And they also <laughs> all have building communications. Um, they include this. These were the first hats that included microphone and earphone all built into the same comm cord. Um, and so that was basically the very end of World War II. These never really saw service during the war, um, but they had reached the point where they took all those lessons learned from field use and were developing that um, just war ended before it became mainstream. Do you Did you also see the evolution of things like, you know, the, the dual plugs that we use in general aviation today or 
And I mean, is that is this where all that kind of began? Yes, you can see a lot of what is today in general aviation um, and how it goes back to you know its history. So there's a couple themes that always come up, and one is the the Air Force and the Navy always have to have something different. <laughs> And that translates to flight caps. It translates to electronics for helmets. Um, and you see that in today as well. Um, the, the actual GA plugs is a good question. I don't really see the GA plugs in uh, military history. So I don't have an answer on where but that similar similar concepts. But yeah, this, the same type of thing you see. Um, different plug types for the two different services and then how that's translated into use in civilian aviation. Um, wow. And so, so here we are with some that, that start to look a little bit like helmets um, and a little bit like a football game is about to start. <laughs> exactly. So the use of non-standard equipment didn't end with the end of World War II. Um, there was a rapid change in technology in the aircraft and there was a similar rapid change of technology and equipment that was needed for the pilots flying those aircraft so the early jet age they had just exited world war ii with soft caps and they suddenly realized we need protective headgear to protect heads against impact so b-80s were one of the first jet aircraft the helmet on the left there is a helmet that was used in one of the early P-80 squadrons. That's the squadron insignia C on the top of it there. And it is actually a football helmet. It is not a oh. flight helmet at all. Oh, really is? It, it really is. And obtained and modified football helmets for use as flight helmets. They installed the aviation electronics. They mounted oxygen mask attachments so they could mount their oxygen mask to it. They painted it with their unit insignias, but it was just a football helmet because there was nothing <laughs> else at the time. That's so that's, that, that's an example of that. And then the uh, the middle one is an example of Wright Patterson Development Lab catching up with what was going on in the field. And that one is an example of the first hard shell helmet post war World War II hard shell helmet that was contracted by the government. And there was a batch of 100 made. Um, and that's one of them. Wow. And then how about the one on the right? That's what I would consider and what many consider the first example of the modern helmet of today. Um, and there was a guy by the name of Charles Lombard who designed it. And that's it. The whole series of how that progressed. But he was the originator of the design. And that design became the company named TopTex. And that's an example of one of the very first TopTex helmets. Still has World War II style communications in it, um, but it has the TopTex design. So. Wow. And then uh, now we start getting into the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Right. So now the government's caught up with uh, the need, and they have designed and produced helmets uh, for the aviators that fit that need. So the example on the left is an H1 helmet, which is the Navy's very first hard shell helmet. 
Um, and they had typical with the Navy, again, which is different than the Air Force always. <laughs> they had uh, set up for boom mic and oxygen mass communications. Um, and that one shows it there with the boom mic. And then the middle version is an Air Force, what we call a P helmet, because there's a whole series of P helmets, but that's a P1A example. Um, and that shows how the Air Force integrated it with building communications. Um, something common for that period that you see on both of them is unit or personal pilot personalization. Um, so that's a neat aspect for me as a collector to see because they're not all the same. They're often very personalized and you can sometimes figure out the, the history behind them of you know, who used it, where was it used, uh, or what you, at least what unit was it used in. So tell me about that for a minute, because that seems really, really significant historically. And in, in when we think about World War II era especially, you think about the classic bomber jacket and the customization that people would do on the back of it for the aircraft and the, or the unit or, or the missions that had been flown in it commemoratively about that. And then all, it, now we make this transition when the helmet gets introduced which remains to this day one of the most iconic things out there, whether it's in movies or anything else. And and is this when it started? Was it was it Korea or was it before that? Uh, you repeat the last part. It broke up a little for me. I'm sorry. Um, so basically, when when did this actually? Was it the Korean War era that 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 the helmet became this your personal? identifier uh, in, in addition to the jacket or maybe instead of the jacket uh it definitely the say the the prevalence of it increased a lot when the hard shell helmet became uh, a popular item or more common item um, but you see examples of that all the way back into the soft helmets of world war ii and even world war one um, that the aviators would paint or hang streamers on their helmets. Um, units would have a particular colored uh, helmet that was different than other units. Um, so it, it does exist in the earlier eras, although there's probably less of them that still exist today uh, because they're, you know, it's a more item that's more apt to degrade and be lost over time uh, than mm -hmm. the hard shell helmet, but right. it certainly did exist. But the, when you think about it, the, uh, flight jacket, painted flight jackets of World War II are the iconic personalized item for aviators of that era. And in the post-World War II generations, it's the helmet. Wow. Isn't that that amazing? And so here we are post-Korean War, and they start really looking a lot more modern. Yes. Um, so on the left there, it's another example of the top text helmet, but it's a more modern version. They've integrated uh, visors, uh, the oxygen mass is integrated the same as it was before, so it's still a fairly early version, but you can see the progression, especially in these three here, of the, the visor systems going from, on the previous pages, no real thought to visors, just still using goggles, same as they did with soft flying hats, um, to the fixed visors on the, the left top text, and then more substantial locking mechanisms to keep the visor down in the middle on the P helmet, which is the 
Air Force version of that. And then on the right, the slightly later period Navy with a fixed visor housing and a center lock knob, very similar to more modern helmets of today. And then uh, Vietnam appears to just continue this, but more of a focus on helicopter helmets. So tell me the, I've always wondered, right? You talk about Navy different than Air Force, but then helicopter has to be different than fixed wing, different helmet, different plugs, which I've never understood. <laughs> Help me understand this. <laughs> well, the development of the helicopter helmet, uh, there was a third player in the party there, and that would be the U.S. Army. They were a major uh, player in the development of helicopter helmets, uh, with that being their primary aviation aircraft. Um, so they really focused on that. There were helicopter helmets prior to that. We saw a couple on previous slides, but they really didn't, the designs didn't start to deviate until the Army focused on that development. And so the helmet on the right there is has the uh, it's actually an apache helicopter setup has the gun sighting system on it but the base shell is the standard helicopter helmet shell that is very common even today um, and it's because of the army's influence in its development is there is there a, a a functional reason to have the ear cups further out on on a helicopter helmet or is there or do you know anything about the the rationale or is it literally about doing something different in, in a way no it's similar i mean a lot of people like to say that the services do things different just because they want to be different but they really are um designing a system that meets their needs and that was the same case with the army with the helicopter helmet that they developed um they found that the Helicopter aircraft accidents had a much higher likelihood of having a side impact than any of the fixed wing aircraft accidents that were happening uh, to the other services. And so improving the side impact protection of the helmet uh, was a major design driver and also is the, you know, the result of why you see the wider or bulbous sides there. And then, of course, we get in now into the, the modern era. Mm -hmm. Yep. So now you're, you're looking at post-Vietnam, um, 80s, 90s, and up into present day. And so one of the major themes that you see in helmet development and helmet history is the designs changing as the application or use of the helmet change. So what you see in... So in the previous slide, you saw that the Army was using the helmet for the first time as a sighting system. So that was a new system for helmets. And then in these examples here, as you see night vision goggles as yet another use of the helmet. So it becomes a good mounting location for any of the visual or uh, respiratory or protective systems that involve the head. And so as the designs change, it's to accommodate those additional features and systems. And you can see that even up into the most modern helmets, which we don't have any examples to show here, but, you know, the F-35 helmet where it's completely designed around the aircraft and the, the aviator and yeah, the systems so that, that are needed. 
so that was going to be my next question, which is like, when you, when you, <laughs> when's your collection going to get an F-35 helmet or one of these other like, um, crazy, uh, you know, helmets that, that let you see, they, be, I mean, those guys can basically see base quote through the aircraft using their mm -hmm. sensors when they look around. Isn't that true? Yes, that is. And I have never had one on, um, we'd love to see what that is like, but I have a, an empty spot up on my shelf here as soon as I find one. <laughs> <laughs> What what is the most modern military helmet that that you have? Mm, oh, I would say well, there's several different um, modern or I would say cool looking development pieces. Um, so it's not exactly necessarily the most modern, but the combat edge system is a system that was developed and used a lot, but the predecessor to that was the TLSS system. And that was a full ensemble that they tried to take all the possible uses of the helmet and build a platform that they all fit on. And this was, they've done that many times, but this is one of the earliest examples of that. Um, so I have, a, and that includes nuclear, biological, chemical protection, night vision, nuclear flash protection, the list goes all in, on. All in a helmet? Yes. Well, yeah, to protect those aspects, I mean, of your body, because your eyes, your respiratory systems, it's all right there at your head. So the helmet becomes the, the mechanism in which to provide that protection. Wow. Do you, do you have a, a favorite piece in your, in your helmet collection? Is there something out of all of it that, that uh, you is really your go-to is your prized possession. Um, there's a, it's really hard, hard to pick. If in just the helmet group, the one that I mentioned that you showed earlier, the one of 100, the first hard shell helmet that the Wright Patterson procured, uh, that's probably my favorite piece. And part of it is the story that goes behind it, um, and how I acquired it. So it, in the picture you saw, it's like a hard shell helmet over top of a soft helmet. And then the, the hard shell uh, snaps in particular soft shell. And those are unique snaps just for that helmet. Um, they're not normal snaps that you typically find on that soft style helmet. And when I was, I was probably 12 years old, I saw a collector who had on display that hard shell helmet. And at the time I really didn't know the whole history behind it but I knew how cool it was and I knew I liked it. And I always kept in touch with the guy. And, you know, he said, if I ever get rid of it, I'll, you, I'll call you. And so years go on. And then I was at an antique shop out in California and I found the soft shell helmet that had the right snaps for that hard shell helmet, one of a hundred, right? So I got it. Now I have the soft shell helmet, but I still don't have the hard shell helmet. And then you fast forward into my twenties, you know, 10, 15 years later, and the guy finally calls me up and he's like, okay, I'm ready to sell it. So huh. I was finally able to marry the two up after a process of 15 years. Oh my, isn't that amazing? I know there was, there was one picture that, that you sent me here that also, I, I, I got, if I were going to guess, I, I thought you were going to talk about this guy. That's another very cool piece. Um, that's a high altitude helmet. It's a partial pressure suit. Uh, for the U.S. Air Force, and one of the 
the helmet itself is rare and unique, but what's really neat about this one is that it has the pilot personalized the design on the back um, for a B-58 Hustler. That's what he flew. And then we also have a picture of the pilot in the period holding the helmet with the design on the helmet. So it's, <laughs> for a uh, you know, helmet collector, that's, you can't beat that. Wow. <laughs> for history and, and providence. That's, that's just amazing. And, and you said it even had some real personalization on there too. Yes. Yeah. So not only does it have his name and the aircraft silhouettes on the back of it, but it also has a, on the faceplate, which was something that would, has a latch on the chin to remove. He has a lucky die tied to the bottom of the latch on the faceplate. Wow. So, um, you've got a bunch of different collective stuff. Uh, and I want to, I want to divert for a minute and talk about some of the modern things. Cause I find it fascinating. And I ha I will say we have a couple of your helmets with our logos on them that I just love. If you want to talk about having a motivation to finish this Mustang behind me, this long-term project that we're pushing through and uh, hope to have flying real soon, um, having the helmet sitting here, just you look at it and you're like, oh yeah, this is going to fly. Oh yeah, this is cool to put on. I need to, I, you know, I, we need to pull some more rivets. We need to do some more work on this thing. And um, and I know that uh, Jake took one of the helmets uh, during our, our flight uh, to uh, Air Venture and, and wore it in the Bonanza <laughs> on our way out. He put it on and he's like, I, I can't hear anything. Of course, he's yelling at the top of his lungs and, and he had one of your helmets on and it's just, it, he said it was incredibly quiet. So it's protective, but there's a bunch of other benefits Tell me a little bit about what goes into your helmets, and uh, and then also we'll talk about what goes in them. Sure. Um, so the modern helmets that we offer to our customers from FlightHelmet.com, they have um, all the features that you'd expect in a fully developed helmet because of the history that's behind it, not just for you know my knowledge and the but just development of the product over its life by all users. Um, so there's been a lot of thought that went into the different aspects to it. So, and those aspects depend a lot on how the helmet's being used. And that's one of the things that we offer to our customers is we don't think there's any one helmet that fits all aviators. And in fact, I know there isn't. <laughs> um, so what we do is we build our helmets custom for the customer based on their preferences, their needs, their aircraft, their flying environment, um, and we're able to choose different visor systems for them, uh, different size helmets, um, different electronics inside, whether it's set up for just a boom microphone or a boom microphone and an oxygen mask or an oxygen mask only, um, and even not even just an oxygen mask. We can set them up for respirator masks and microphone wind protective masks. Um, so there's a whole variety of ways that we tailor helmets to our customers. Um, and I think that's one of our main advantages is being able to do that and be, being so knowledgeable about all the different options with the helmets and how those options need to be employed to create a 
custom helmet that is going to be exactly what the customer needs. Because oftentimes the customer doesn't necessarily know what features they want on the helmet. So that part of the process is communicating with the customer to understand what their needs are and then sharing with them what we think would be a good solution helmet wise. Mm. Now, one of the things I, I want to kind of, uh, I had my own in our discussions have had my own mind kind of opened up about this and, uh, and who it applies to. And I kind of want to pass that on to everyone else because I, I came to you and said, look, are, are most of your customers like aerobatic pilots? Cause that's, that's the first thing my, my head goes to as to who would, who would buy a helmet. And, and, and you explain that is, that's, that's just one piece of it. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's a question we get a lot from customers who don't wear helmets. And then we start to explain and then similar to our conversation, like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I never thought about that. So yeah, there, we have acrobatic pilot customers, um, but we also have agricultural crop duster customers. Um, one of the well-known ones is helicopter operators because really the the use of helmets and helicopters has, is more prevalent than it is in fixed wing general aviation. Um, so we, we do offer helicopter helmets for all those users, but in the fixed wing market, you know, it's not only the acrobatic and the, the crop duster, uh, but also the bush pilot and the warbird pilot and the um, ultralight, even powered parachute operators, experimental uh, aircraft builders. It's, we, we come across a new customer pretty much, I won't say daily, but certainly every month or so there's a new uh, customer. We even have high altitude balloon pilots that have gotten helmets from us. Really? Yes. That's fascinating. That They talk about a new one. That 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 is definitely the one that I wouldn't have put on the list, but it, <laughs> it just, it just makes sense, right? Like, uh, I mean, at, at AirVenture, we spent a fair amount of our time uh, uh, checking out uh, this year over at the light sport area with all the all the open air cockpit and ultralights and all sorts of things over there because that's just a world unto itself. Um, and it didn't occur to me until I got there and saw that that absolutely the this makes perfect sense to have helmets when when you're flying aircraft that you're so much out in the breeze. Right. I mean, it's not only is it a good idea for your head, protective wise, in case there was an accident, but it makes a quieter environment. It's a good platform for wind protection for your face with visor systems. Mm -hmm. um, it keeps people always are always trying to keep a headset from flying off in the wind or flying mm -hmm. off if you're flying acrobatics and there just isn't that problem with a helmet. Right. It and. And of course, at the end of the day, and I know you do it also for warbird pilots and things like that, but I mean, there is a piece of it at the end of the day about how cool they look. There is. And we have some Cessna 152 pilots who want to look cool and have bought a helmet. <laughs> with, the, with the black visor coming down in the front. and the... I'm not naming names, but possibly even oxygen masks and G-suits. <laughs> It, it, yeah, I, I will say it's um, you feel different when you put that on and then you lower the, the visor. It, uh, when, 
Uh, do you have any stories? Is there anything about when you were talking to people where you where you you really end up spending most of your time, perhaps on the look side of things? Wait, one one aspect, I guess. What comes to mind when you ask the question is, you know, because people are buying the helmet, it's a very personal item, and they've yes, we've we've solved all their problems, or you know design the correct solution for their aircraft and everything but now they want it to look cool it, you know solution wise technically it's great but they still want it to look cool and so part the other aspect of our business is building the helmet and painting it and putting graphics on it so that it looks cool it matches the aircraft so we've had uh, customers who had their aircraft designs done by you know graphic designers and they also did a graphic design for the helmet to make sure that the helmet would match the aircraft. And we apply the graphics to the helmet and, you know, the aircraft painter painted the paint aircraft and it all comes together looking like it was built as one. Wow. That must be, uh, it, it must be pretty cool. Do you have any, I mean, I don't, we, we have to sit on pictures or anything like that, but are there any that that's, that stick out to you in your mind uh, without, you know, kind of naming names of designs that, that uh, either were especially challenging or were especially awesome? <laughs> uh, two popped to mind. Um, not necessarily really that artistically wonderful, um, but because I'm a collector and historian, they really were probably my favorites. And one was from a pilot who used to fly U-2s, and he now flies general aviation aircraft and he had his original helmet that had a logo and everything for his u2 squadron and so when we built his new helmet we designed the helmet to have that same design and squadron logo and everything on his new helmet to match his u2 days oh isn't that amazing yeah, yeah. so that's that's one of my favorites. And then the other one, which we actually just had this customer stop by to visit us at our booth in Oshkosh this year. He had a picture of his father who flew and the graphics that were on his father's helmet. And so he had, he flies himself now, but he had us build his helmet and put the graphics on his helmet to match the graphics that had been on his father's helmet. And so he brought to us at the show a picture of him sitting in an aircraft with his new helmet posed exactly the same as the same picture he has of his father sitting in his aircraft with his original helmet. Wow. So like that, I hadn't even thought about that, but reproductions essentially of people, either them or their loved ones in service, their service helmets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We haven't done a lot of it, but that's the ones that stick out. Those would be examples. I think you'd be doing more of them now. <laughs> <laughs> I think people now, can, now, now get that. It, one of the things that I've gotten a lot of questions from people about has to do with um, the people that fly in more open-air cockpits, whether it's ultralights or whether it's uh, you know a WACO or what, what, whatever. Is that make a big difference? Because obviously that's always been a challenge for headsets. It is. Um, and it, it is a challenge for helmets too. A lot of it is in the, the microphone and picking up wind noise that seems to be a major problem um, especially in the the full open cockpits where there's no wind protection and you're just in the unexposed 
degrees. Um, and so a lot of that can be, well, that's why we have the wind mask as an option, um, because that solves that problem. You need to wear a mask instead of use a boom, but it completely eliminates the wind noise issue. Um, so that's one solution we have for that. Um, and then an other aspect to that is what, no matter what the comms issue is, there, because there are different issues in different aircraft, whether it's loud engine noise or wind noise, um, or just not hearing things correctly or being able to speak correctly, um, the, it's an interaction between not just the helmet and the boom mic that's on the helmet, but also the intercom or the aircraft system that is in the aircraft. So it's, there's really no solution one way or the other that's always true in every case. So it's a very tailored approach to what the customer has, what environment they're flying in, um, and what really ultimately works out working for them. Um, that's something as a company and as a business because we enjoy working with customers and doing that sort of tailored approach. Um, we do that. And it's sometimes it's just a trial and error with the customer to get mm -hmm. them the right solution ultimately. Um, right. But that's what they get when they work with us. We don't, they don't buy a helmet and walk away and that's the last we interact with them. They have a problem. We work with them and make sure that we do everything we can to solve the problem and make sure that they enjoy using the helmet in their aircraft and application. Right. Now you also work. Obviously, our helmets have the uh, 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 Lightspeed makes a, a special unit that they put into helmets and work with you. Their H mod, um, and and it, that's an option also, I guess, that you do for people so they can have active noise canceling. Yes, uh, we were actually the first helmet company that was approved by Lightspeed for installation of their H mod system um, into helmets. So we're very proud of that, and we've had a long relationship with Lightspeed using their product and getting customers uh, to choose that product because it's a great product. Um, they designed it for in helmets. It's the only premium A&R system that has that uh, and it comes with a three-year warranty from Lightspeed. So the same factory-backed support that you expect from a Lightspeed headset, you get that in the helmet, um, but it's backed by them but serviced by us. So mm -hmm. you do the installations. Is and do the service work if there is any. Do a lot of people choose that? Do they go not just for helmet, but for active noise uh, reduction? Yes, definitely. That's a very popular option. Um, and it's Lightspeed's Zulu H mod has been out several years now. Um, but prior to that, there really wasn't uh, a premium A&R system available in helmets. So a lot of our work, uh, you know, we build new helmets and offer new systems. For customers but we also are a service center for existing helmets so if a customer already has a helmet uh, we can do upgrade work on that including installing the light speed system and we do a lot of that so we're familiar with not just our helmet brand but really all helmets right that makes a lot of sense so as as we approach the top of the hour i want to show people a few more things from your uh collection talk about it um because there's a few stories that go along with this as well. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the snowman here. <laughs> so that's an Arctic suit, uh, aviation, World War II, Army Air Corps uh, for Alaska and Northern flying environments. 
and it's a parka fleece line uh, one of the aspects to it is that it was designed as a full outfit so there's a specific trouser and a specific boot that goes with the jacket it all it all as, it all it all clicks together and then you've got some some really cool jackets yes um this one's a cloth flying jacket world war ii army air corps um and bugs bunny is doing what he does best on the back of a flying jacket and that's dropping bombs <laughs> and each bomb on most jackets represents a mission that the pilot flew or the air crewman flew um the leather a2 jacket here uh, skippy was a b17 and there were two crews of men that went through that aircraft so there's about 20 of these jackets in the world i know where three of them are um and the they flew 25 missions in the b17 and all their bombs are headed towards hitler there running across the bottom of the jacket <laughs> and then um i really get a kick out of some of the stories that you told you have complete ejection seats there yes we do uh, we have actually everything from the world's first pyrotechnic ejection seat world war ii german uh, he-162 all the way up to modern present day ejection seats so in the yeah, the, the one that you're on currently is a U.S. Air Force F-4 Phantom, which is probably one of the most iconic seats out there. Um, Vietnam and the 80s era uh, Martin Baker ejection seat. So, And it's one of the more complex ones as far as systems and how it operates. That one I threw in there. It's a 1939 dated aircraft seat. And if we have any viewers who like a trivia project, they can figure out what it is i'd love to know <laughs> now you also told me about an ejection seat that fired down yes uh the one you have here is the he-162 seat that i just mentioned but the other one that we have which was a couple back with the mannequin sitting in it that's okay. a downward firing f-104 seat and so the early f-104s the C-1 seat is the one that they first came out with because the F-104 had a very tall tail. The first design attempt at solving that problem was to eject the pilot through the bottom of the aircraft and not have to deal with trying to miss the tail uh, because the aircraft was also very fast. So it had to get up quickly to clear the tail. So rather than solve that problem, they just shot him through the bottom. But <laughs> what they failed to th realize was that most aircraft incidents happen on takeoff or landing and so then they had to come out with a instruction to the pilots who were flying those aircraft was if you have a problem make sure you roll the aircraft upside down before ejecting <laughs> can, can you imagine at the last minute that that's what you need to do roll <laughs> upside down you've got an engine failure on takeoff step one roll inverted yeah, step all right two exit the aircraft so those well, seats quick, quickly came out of the aircraft and they replaced it with an upward firing seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, GM, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on Social Flight Live. It's a it's a fascinating uh, little look into this unique corner of aviation. Um, really, really wonderful. And, and tell us how, if anyone is interested in learning more and then also, of course, in obtaining a helmet and getting a, one of the state-of-the-art helmets that you sell, 
they go to flighthelmet.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep, flighthelmet.com. Uh, we'll have uh, a lot of our products. They can view information on there. Um, but really, you know, calling us, our phone number is 800-531-4898. We're uh, sending us an email to customer service at flighthelmet.com. Um, and that's where we can work with customers to really solve their particular need and get them set up in what exactly they they want and they need. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for taking time. I know you just got back from AirVenture. You must be exhausted, and I will let you get back to your family. And uh, and again, thanks for, for so much for spending your evening here on Social Flight Live. Sure thing. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. You're very welcome. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out to welcome us back from AirVenture. If we met with you out at the show, thank you so much for calling us aside and and spending uh, a little bit of time. It, it really is a treasure. And if you see us around, because we go to all sorts of different events, um, please wave us down there and we'll keep, keep giving stuff away uh, as well. We will be back next Tuesday, August 9th with helicopter aerobatics and airborne images with the incredible Aaron Fitzgerald, who gave a, a really amazing performance in the Red Bull helicopter at AirVenture 2022 and is performing at all sorts of other air shows as well throughout the summer and, uh, and moving on. And so if you have not had an opportunity to see this performance with uh, a helicopter, performing aerobatics, you, you just need to check it out. It, it's amazing. And Aaron will be with us Tuesday, August 9th. On Tuesday, August 16th, the legendary NASA flight director and experimental aircraft association builder and writer with uh, kit planes, Paul Dye will be joining us. And that, just, that, that will just be an epic program. So be sure to put that one on your calendar Tuesday, August 16th, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. Again, thank you all so much. You are what make all of this work, and you all support general aviation. And I wish you all blue skies.